Okay, so we're here now this morning for the third uh, final uh, class of the three sessions on Megillat Ruth. Uh, so I'd like to resume with chapter, chapter three and four, completing the book. Chapter three takes place in the Goren, the threshing floor. And um, chapter four is in the gate, in the Shar. So um, we took note last week that the story of Ruth that takes place in the in the threshing floor in the in the in the, in the Goren uh, reminds us of two stories in the book of Breshit. One is the story of Yehudan Tamar, which is a story of leveret marriage, and Boaz is a descendant of Yehuda. That's the way the book ends. Uh, he's traced through Peretz to um, Peretz, the son of Yehuda, the, the mother being Tamar, traced down to King David through Boaz. On the other side, we have Ruth, who's a Moabite, and she traces her lineage back to Lot. And the story of Lot, we also have a kind of leveret marriage, which is the story of Lot and his two daughters. The daughters thinking the, their world at least has been destroyed, sleep with their father and produce two children, Ammon and Moab. So we have, one might say, two kinds of leveret in the broad sense, the leveret marriage stories in the book of Breshit. And now Ruth and Boaz descending both from on one side from Lot and the other from Yehuda, we have another story I would call the leveret marriage, which takes place in chapter three and chapter four, they actually get married. And it's interesting to think about the relationship between those stories and the story of Ruth. So I think it would be a good idea to begin with the story of uh, Yehuda and Tamar, not to get to the whole story, which would take us a lot of time, but to look at the main elements of the Yehuda and Tamar story that have relevance to the book of Ruth. And then we'll move to the last chapter, chapter four, Boaz Allah Hashar, and that's all about Boaz. The hero of chapter four is Boaz, and what Boaz does in chapter four, very interesting. And that's the fourth and last chapter, story of the gate. But now we're in the story of the threshing floor, the Goren. So let's first take a look briefly at Yehuda and Tamar. Now the story of Yehuda and Tamar is 38th chapter of Breshi, Genesis chapter 38. The story uh, is found, begins in the Torah after chapter 37, which is the sale of Joseph. Sale of Joseph, which was suggested by Yehuda himself. The brothers are sitting down, Joseph's in a pit where he will die because there's no water. They're busy eating their meal and then they see a caravan in the distance of Yishmaelim, Ishmaelite traders, and Yehuda says, why should we kill our brother? Let's sell him. There's no profit in killing him. Let's sell him. And he's that brother. You don't kill your brother, says Yehuda. And the brothers hear what he's saying. Whether they actually did pick him up out of the pit and sell him, which doesn't seem to be the case, but they're certainly considering selling him. In the interim, somebody else comes along, Midianites, pull Joseph out of the pit and sell him. And Joseph ends up in the land of Egypt. And then the Torah moves away from the Joseph story. Joseph's not mentioned in chapter 38. 
and Vahi Vahitahi, Vayeri Yehuda mi Etechav. Suddenly we shift our attention to Yehuda. And the text moves to a different place. And the question is, what is the relationship between Yehuda and Tamar and the rest of the book of Breshit? Why is it positioned specifically in chapter 38? It's placed right in the middle of the Joseph story after his sale prior to the story of Joseph in Egypt. That's an important question for the study of Breshit. That's not our problem this morning, but it's a very important one. In any event, let's look at the basic uh, ideas relevant to us of Yehuda and Tamar. So Yehuda leaves his brothers. That's how chapter 38 begins. And um, turns aside, Vayet, negative word, the veers off, to an Adua night man named Chira. And there he sees a Canaanite, the daughter of a Canaanite. And he sees her and takes her. And they have quickly three children, immediately three children, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And Yehuda finds a wife for his oldest son. Her name is Tamar. It's chapter 38. So the oldest son, who was heir, is married to Tamar. We know nothing about Tamar, except her name. The Torah never identifies her in terms of lineage. The wife of Judah is the daughter of the Canaanite man. But Tamar is never designated one way or the other in the text. So we have someone who leaves and takes up with the Canaanites, which essentially is similar to the, how the book of Ruth begins. Elimelech leaves the land and he goes to Moab, <coughs> a problematic people in terms of the story, history of the Jewish people and the Torah. So they both make a problematic decision to leave and they connect to people or peoples that are very problematic. And then in the story of Yudan and Tamar, what happens is his first two sons die. The first son dies because he is evil. Rabbi Ene Hashem, that's verse number seven of chapter 38. His name is Er, Ayin Resh, and he's Ra, Resh Ayin. God killed him, it says, by Yimiteu Hashem. And the second son is instructed by Yehuda to perform leveret marriage. The word is Yibum. And Yehuda instructs his son, Yabemota, for came Zera Liachicha. In other words, raise, literally raise up seeds or children for your brother. It means to extend the, the dead brother's kin lines can be extended through the idea of leveret marriage. And the responsibility in chapter 38 falls on the brother. It's the brother's responsibility. So Yehuda says you have a brotherly responsibility. But Onan, as we know, does not doesn't mind sleeping with Tamar, but he doesn't want her to have children. So he interrupts the intercourse to make sure that there are no children. God sees this and God kills him as well. So there is now two sons dead and he has one son remaining whose name is Shelah. And Yehuda is afraid to permit Tamar to marry son number three because the obligation of Yibun falls now on son number three. But Yehuda suspects Tamar, apparently. He holds her responsible for the death of his first two sons, though we, the reader, know that's not true. God killed them, it says, unusual language. And we know why, either because they're bad or they show disdain for their brother. 
So Yehuda says, Tamar, why don't you uh, go back home? Go back to your father's house until my son grows up. For he said, he thought, Penyomut Gavu Kiachav, chapter 38, verse number 11, lest he also die, my third son, Sheila. So Tamar goes back to her home and waits. Many years pass. By Yibu Hayamim, nothing's happening. He has no intention of ever permitting her to marry son number three, but he told her, play the widow. In other words, you're still attached to my family. You're not free to marry somebody else. On the other hand, he has no, no, in, no uh, inclination and there's no expectation from his standpoint to ever allow Tamar to marry son number three because he blames her for the death of son one and son two. So he has no interest in that. And um, she's waiting and waiting. Meanwhile, his own wife dies. So Yehuda, as soon as his wife dies, immediately, Yehuda, he sets out for the sheep shearers. Sheep shearing is a time of rejoicing. So he's setting out for the sheep shearing immediately. He's consoled immediately. Meanwhile, she languishes as a widow for many years. She hears about this. She dresses up as a prostitute. And it says, because she saw that Sheila was not given to her. He had grown up already. Yudha said, wait till he grows up. Well, he grew up a long time ago. Nothing's happened. And she stands on the road and she covers herself up. So you can't see who it is. And verse number 15 of chapter 38, Now Judah thought she was a prostitute. He didn't recognize her because her face was covered. Well, he, he veers aside and, she, and he says, let me, let me come to you, let me sleep with you. He did not know. He, he, he did not know it was his daughter-in-law. Incest, daughter-in-law. She says, what will you pay me? What will you give me? He says, I'll send you a goat. I'll send you a goat. She says, I want to guarantee a security, an eravon, a pledge. I don't accept promises in this business. Cash business. Give me something now. Yehuda says, what should I give you? She says, Your staff, your seal, and probably means your coat. Your coat. So, he gives her these things, sleeps with her. And then the next day, he sends his, his friend, Hira, to find her, to get back the staff, the seal, and the coat. Meanwhile, she's disappeared. She goes back home. She puts back on the widow's garments she was wearing. And Yehuda can't find her. He sends the goat to find her, together with his friend, Hira. She's not to be found. He asked, Hira asked people, in the neighborhood, have you seen this Kadesha, this cult prostitute? No such person, they say. So he goes back to Judah. In verse number 22, I can't find her. And not only that, everybody said there is no such person. So Yehuda says, let her keep the things. It'll be too embarrassing. I sent you, you couldn't find her. Meanwhile, three months later, Yehuda is told that you're your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has uh, 
been promiscuous, and she's not only that, she's pregnant. Says Yehuda, let her be burnt. Let her burn. Now she's being brought out. He would say it. She sends these things to Judah. And she says, the father of this child is the possessor of these things. Do you recognize them or not? Yehuda recognized them. And he said, Sod come many, she's more righteous than I. For I gave her not, for your safudata, he knew her not anymore. The end of the story is the birth of the child, but it turns out it's not a child, it's children. He bathed with the ta, there were twins. We have another story of twins. We had Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau, back in chapter 25, and now we have twins. In the story of Yaakov and Esau, the question is, which one's, who's the older, who's, who's first? The story of Yaakov and Esau, Esau comes out, Yaakov's holding on to his heel, maybe trying to pull him back. But he's, it's a struggle at birth, and there's a sale of the birthright later, so it's not totally clear who's first and second. In the story over here, one child begins to emerge. So the midwife ties a red string, a shani, on the child, saying this one is to be born first. But lo and behold, that child goes back into the womb, birth canal, and the other one jumps out. And the, and the, mid, and she, and the midwife says, what a breach you have made, ma parasta orecha peretz. What a breach you have made, peretz. And he called him peretz. And the second one came out upon whose uh, hand was the red string with the shani. He called him Zerach. So we have the birth of twins. That's the story of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38. And the birth of twins to, to, yeah, to Judah and to Tamar. And this story is actually referenced explicitly in the book of Ruth in chapter 4. After, Ruth gives, uh, after Boaz marries Ruth, and the uh, community blesses, blesses Boaz, bless Ruth, and they say, May your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore for Judah. So the story of Judah and Tamar is actually referenced explicitly in the book of Ruth, in Megillat Ruth, which certainly suggests to us that the book wants us to look carefully and think about the story of Judah and Tamar. What are the parallels, the relationships? How does one story speak to the other? How does the book of Ruth use the story of Judah and Tamar? So let's just, without getting into every element of Judah and Tamar, let's just think now about some of the basic pieces of the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, the story of Judah and Tamar, let me begin by saying that when you think about Judah and Tamar, and you think about Ruth and Boaz, it's clear that the character of Boaz is much more positive from beginning to end, but I'm talking even in the beginning, is much more positive than the story of, than, than the character of Judah in the beginning of the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, the, Jew, the character of Judah is a, presented to us as a person 
who understands that brothers have responsibility to brothers because he instructs son number two to marry the widow of son number one, raise up children for your brother. So he understands it to some extent, but he doesn't understand it fully because he, he refuses when it comes to son number three, okay, he's afraid that she's responsible for the death of his, of his children, but he doesn't take into account that on the other hand, what leverage marriage does when it works is to, is to extend the kin lines of the, of, the, uh, of the deceased. So he refuses to do that. Not just does he refuse to do it, but he doesn't tell the truth. He lies to her, not only that, he sends her out of his house. Not only that, he instructs her to wait around. That is to say, you are tied to my family. You are betrothed, one might say, to my third son with no intention of ever permitting son number three to marry her. So on one hand, she's committed to his family, but he's not committed to her. And when she gets pregnant later, she's gonna be burned, presumably as a, as a married woman who had an affair, not as a single woman. So the character of Judah is very not positive. And of course, it comes right after the story of the sale of Joseph, where the brothers collectively lie to their father, apart from trying to kill their brother and causing his sale. They lie to their father. Father, you, they bring the bloody coat of Joseph, which they, they dipped his coat in blood. Father, do you recognize the coat? Hakeena, recognize, which is what Tamar will say to Judah. So the character of Judah is very negative in the beginning. Then of course he confesses, takes responsibility, and that's very important, we'll get to that. Just wanted to point out the character of Boaz is much more positive. Boaz cares about the family. Boaz sends care packages back to Naomi. Boaz instructs all the people to be very kind to Ruth, gives us so much extra food. That's the story of chapter two. On the other hand, as I mentioned last week, he was aware of the story, presumably before he's told by the person in the field. He knows all about Ruth, all about Naomi, but he hasn't proactively done anything to help them. He's very nice, very kind, gives Ruth a very nice blessing. May God bless you. May God under whose wings you have come. But it turns out through the lens of chapter three that actually it's the responsibility of somebody in the family the relative, the goel, the redeemer, to do the right thing, to protect the family. And Boaz, at the end of chapter two, when, when Ruth comes home at the end of chapter two, how, how, how come you have so much food? Who's field where you're in? Boaz, oh Boaz, mi he's, he's one of the goalim. He's a potential redeemer. So Boaz is very kind, very sweet, but he's not doing what he's supposed to do. He's not taking the full responsibility, but a much more positive character than the Judah we encounter in the beginning of Judah and Tamar. Now the story of Judah and Tamar, of course, is how Tamar, the woman, if you want to use the word entraps, I mean, not that he needs so much entrapping, but she tricks him. She pretends to be something else. She disguises herself. And she takes from him symbols of his leadership, things that are recognizable, the seal, they're his. And at the end, what she succeeds in doing is producing 
not one child, but two children. In other words, what happens at the end of the story is that we have a kind of leveraged marriage has taken place. Not leveraged marriage in which she marries the closest relative. Because the closest relative as defined in Judah and Tamar is the brother, Shayla, the one that Yehuda refuses to send. But, but the uh, second closest relative, which is Judah. And when she has twins at the end of the story, we have very appropriately a double yibum because Judah has lost two sons. Er and Onan have died. So at the end of the story, the twins replace, each twin replaces one of the two uh, deceased children. So we have leveret marriage, not by the closest one, but we have leveret marriage which fully replaces the two deceased children. That's the story of, of Judah and Tamar. Now what's interesting is on top of that, when you read the story of Judah and Tamar, one of the words that jumps out is the word pledge or eravon. What, what will you give me, she says, I'll send a goat. A goat in the book of Genesis, by the way, is a symbol of deception. She says, I don't accept promises. And the reader understands he's promised her something for many years, which he doesn't deliver on. I don't accept promises. What will you give me now? Well, she says, what, what do you want? I want the staff, the seal, and the coat, the symbols of leadership, which she takes. So the Eiravon, and then he goes, sends a man to get back the Eiravon, and he can't find her. Now we have to remember the Eiravon is a pledge. It's what you give in lieu of payment. The Arev, for example, Arev, Talmud discusses the Arev in several places, is the one that guarantees a loan. I borrow money, you're not sure I can pay you, you want someone to guarantee it. That's the Arev. I don't pay, you go to the second party. What she's doing then in taking the Eiravon from Yehuda, simultaneously she's taking Yehuda, who himself is an Eiravon, because he's not the closest relative, he's the second closest relative. So it's a, the Eiravon is very appropriate. And then he gets back the Eiravon later. He gets back the symbols of leadership. He gets them back in the story of Judah and Tamar through recognition, one would say through confession. Through confession, he becomes worthy of, of becoming a, uh, a, a leader. That's very important for the student story of Judah and Tamar. It'd be very important for our story too, Book of Ruth, because what she's teaching him is about leadership. Who is the one who's appropriate to lead is the one that takes responsibility. And Judah, in the book of Breshit, is going to be the one who takes the responsibility, who's the Arev. That's the story later of Benjamin, when Benjamin is prospectively going to be kept by Joseph in Egypt, because he's been falsely accused of stealing a magical goblet, then Judah comes forward. And Judah says, I've taken Anochi Ervenu, he had said to his father. I'm the Arev, I'm responsible, take me instead of Benjamin. At which point Joseph breaks down when he sees that Judah is willing to take responsibility for Joseph's full brother, Benjamin. That's when Joseph breaks down that's when the family comes together. Those are some of the key elements in the story of Judah and Tamar. And 
Now let's see how that plays out in the Book of Rules, how that plays out in our story. We also have to uh, remember that in the back of our minds, we have the story of Lot as well, also a kind of leveret marriage, but that leveret marriage is less kosher. There it's his own daughters. Okay, here's a daughter-in-law. Leveret marriage is always incest. It's a legitimate incest under certain conditions. But in the case of Lot, there's a difference between Lot on one hand and between Judah on the other hand. Let me just mention what that is right now, and it's a very important difference between the two stories. The story of Lot and his daughters is about the daughters sleeping with their father. Their intentions are made clear. They think the world, their world, is destroyed. There's nobody left. Let's, 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 so it, it has the effect of extending the kin lines of Lot. It's a kind of Yibum. So their motives, one can question, or one can say under the circumstances, we can accept it, possibly, not clear. But the problem is that in chapter 19, the Torah emphasizes that Lot doesn't know. He doesn't know when they lie down and doesn't know when they get up. In the case of Judah, the opposite. He didn't know who Tamar was when he first meets her, but later he confesses. And after he confesses, so he knows who it is. He says, Tzad kami many, she's more righteous than I. For yourself, old with that he knew her not again. It's funny, knew her not again suggests he once did know her. He didn't know her, it says, but it means retrospectively, through the present confession, you actually change the past. You not only change the future, but you also change the past. So Lot is one who never knows. If you don't know, if you don't have the information, the facts, you can't correct it. You can't make it right. Judah's confession makes things right. Lot, on the other hand, lo yada, he doesn't know. So that's a little bit background to chapter three. Let's discuss chapter three a bit, and uh, then we can move to chapter four, the story of the gate. Okay, so let's go to chapter three of Ruth. Um, so chapter three, so Naomi, it says to Ruth in chapter three, So he says, I seek for you, Manoach, a place of rest, which will be good for you. And she instructs Ruth, says Boaz, our relative, our close kinsman, tonight is winnowing on the threshing floor in the Goren. For Rachatz, Vasach, she gives us seven different uh, verbs. Bathe yourself, anoint yourself, get dressed, samsim botayich, go down to the Goren. And then she says later on, Yadat, know the place that he sleeps, uncover his feet, and lie down, seven verbs. He'll tell you what to do. I pointed out last week, end of the class, that there's a Korean Ketiv, that in the text, when it says, Yoradit, go down, it's written with the Yod. We read, Yoradit, I will go down. Shachaft, lie down, it's written, Shachavti, I will lie down. 
And here I believe the significance of that is that Boaz is related to Naomi. So if Leverett marriage is to take place, if Bo- Naomi's lost her husband, if Leverett marriage is to take place, or redemption is to take place, it, Naomi should be the candidate. But Naomi said in chapter one, I'm too old to have children. So there wouldn't be a purpose in having Naomi be the woman who Boaz marries, because that won't extend any kin lines. So Ruth goes as Naomi's second. Ruth is representing herself. She's also a widow, but she's also representing Naomi. So we're talking about a double yibum. Yehuda and Tamar had a double yibum, which was different. But this double yibum is that there has to be a yibum for two different people. Ruth on one hand and Naomi on the other. So that's the Kriya and Ketiv. You will go down because I can't go down. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for the family. It's building the family, which is the story of Judah and Tamar. So she does what she's told to do. She doesn't complain. In chapter one, Naomi commanded her to go home. Ruth said, I'm not going home. But here she understands that's for the best, even though it puts her in a very awkward position. But it's all for the best. She does everything her mother-in-law commanded her in verse number six. And then with Yochal Boaz, Vayesh, Vayitav, Libo, Boaz eats and drinks, he's very merry. Vayovo Lishkav Biktseho Arema, Vatovo Balot, Vatigal Margulotov Vatishkov, Boaz ate and drank. Drinking sometimes lends oneself to, puts you in a vulnerable situation as we know. Story of Jacob. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, when the women were switched, it was a party. When Isaac blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau, he was given wine to drink. You can see for yourself in chapter 27. So wine makes one less sharp. You're more easily fooled. Bad things can happen when you're drinking. And over here, Boaz is drinking. And Ruth comes, he goes down Lishkav Bitseya Arema. And Arema is a pile. But notice the word Arema, Ayin Resh Memhe, which reminds us of the word Arum, which means both naked and means clever. The snake sees the man and woman naked, and he's Nachashaya Arum. This is about Arma, this is about cleverness, it's about stealth, it's about deception for a good purpose, but it is about deception. Batavo balot. Notice the word balot. So lot, of course, reminds us in stealth. Lot means to be covered up, to be disguised, to conceal one's motives. Notice the literary effect on Arema and then Lot, balot. This is Lot's great, great, great granddaughter. And she lies down next to him. The language is very suggestive. Yada, gala, shachav. But nothing actually seems to happen. But there's highly suggestive language. So it's a cleaned up version, one might say, of Lot, which is incest with daughters, daughter-in-law. And now we have Ruth and Boaz, highly suggestive, but nothing actually seems to happen. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, and Boaz says, Mia, who are you? What is this? And Ruth says, as we discussed, I'm Ruth, your Amma, not Shifcha, but Amma. Amma is often a Shifcha that you marry. 
more than just a slave, female slave. You are the redeemer. You're the goel. You had given me a blessing that God should bless me, but you're the redeemer. You're the goel. It's your job to, to redeem. So Boaz says to her, Boaz says, you are blessed. You're blessed. The book will end with a lot of blessings. Here we have another blessing. This kindness this act of loyalty is even greater than the first act, presumably of leaving Moab with Naomi, caring for Naomi. You didn't go after the young men, whether rich or poor, someone your age. Ruth is much younger than Boaz, because of my daughter. And he says, don't worry, he says, I'm going to do whatever you want. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. Everybody knows you are an Eshet Chayel. Here we have the term Eshet Chayel. Earlier Boaz was called in chapter two, Ish Gibor Chayel. So they're well mashed. You are an Eshet Chayel. It's funny, you think about Eshet Chayel, you know? Think about the grandmother walking down the aisle, you know? And Eshet Chayel, Eshet... Who's called the Eshet Chayel? It's the one that at midnight sneaks up, uncovers somebody, lies down next to him in the middle of the night. This is the Eshet Chayel. And This is the Eshel Anyway, then Boaz says, the truth is, Boaz says, I am a redeemer. But I'm not the closest relative. There's a relative who's closer than me. So the bells go off. This is Judah and Tamar. Yehuda is not the closest relative. The closest relative is actually Judah's son, Shelah who, of course, Judah has no intention of ever permitting to marry Tamar. But Tamar, recognizing she can't get the closest relative, if I can't get the closest relative, I'll get the next closest relative. I'll get the Arev. That's the story of the Arev and the Eravon. It's done without Yehuda's knowledge, obviously, but after the fact, he confesses and consents. She's more righteous than I. So we have a story of going to the second closest relative. Why does she go to the second closest relative? Why don't they go to the closest relative? Answer, because the second closest relative is a good person. They know he's good. They know he cares. They know he's compassionate. So there's always a chance that a good person will help you. The other fellow, we know nothing about him. Maybe a decent guy, maybe not. But there's little chance that the average person will marry allow anybody to marry a Moabite, that's for sure. So you go after the one who potentially could help you. And that's the story of Boaz. So Boaz says, Lini Halayla, sleep here tonight, stay here tonight. In the morning, if the other fellow redeems you, you're redeemed. If he does not wish to redeem you, I will redeem you, I swear. He takes an oath, stay till the morning. She lies next to him till the morning and she gets up early in the morning. He says, make sure no one knows you came here. And then he says something interesting at the end of chapter three, he says, He says, hold the, sh the shawl you are wearing. And he measures out six measures of barley and he put it, he put it upon her. 
And then when she comes back home, Naomi says to who are you? Who are you means <clears throat> in verse 60, who are you? Are you Mrs. Boaz or not? What happened? Who are you? And she told her everything. She tells her what the man said. And he said to me, She said, he gave me these six bowies. You're not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. What does that signify? Don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So presumably it relates back to chapter one, when Naomi returned home after the death of her husband and two sons, and they asked, is this Naomi? The people of the town in Beit Lechem, is this Naomi? And Naomi said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, call me bitter. For God has made me very bitter. Ani halachti. I left full. Ani halachti. I went out full. God brought me back empty. So full and empty in chapter one refers to her family. She left full, father, two sons. Comes back empty, no, no, no and husband, two sons. She comes back empty, no husband, no sons. So the message to Naomi is, he said to me, don't go empty. One way or the other, Boaz says to Naomi through Ruth, one way or the other, there will be, there will be, family will be rebuilt. Now, why it's six barleys is a very good question. He measured out six measures of barley. And I think there are different uh, suggestions about the six. The thought that I had about the six was that when you think about it, there are six people that need redemption. The book begins with three couples. There's Naomi and Elimelech, there's Ruth and Machlon, there's Arpa and Kilion. So in other words, what he has to do basically is to the goel in a sense. If it's, we're talking about restoration, restoring Naomi to the way things were, the book begins with six people. So perhaps the six is saying, I'm going to fill up the, I'm going to fill the loss. There's a loss of the six people that have lost, have been lost in a sense. And perhaps the promise over here, but certainly a promise of restoration and a promise made to Naomi. What he's saying is, I'm going to do the right thing by the family, including you, Naomi. Remember, he's related to Naomi. He's not related directly to, to Ruth. Naomi says to Ruth, Shvibiti, wait here. Let's see. The matter will be concluded today. The man is not going to wait. The Boaz is not going to wait around. Boaz is going to act immediately. Boaz actually said, in the morning, Baboka, not in a month, not in a week, in the morning. Stay here tonight. Tonight is a time of waiting, of hoping. Wait here tonight. We'll see what happens in the morning. So now we come to chapter number four. That's the Goran. That's the threshing floor. The Goran, because the Goran takes place, the winnowing takes place at the end of the season. Everything's been collected. And now you have it completed. It's in the Goran. It's how the book of Shmuel ends with Goran Aravna. 
sense of completion. What kind of completion will we have in the book of Ruth? So now we move to chapter four. The remainder of the time we'll spend on chapter four. If it's possible to unmute, if someone has a question now, before we begin chapter four, uh, I'd be happy to hear, try to address if people have a couple of questions or can unmute themselves. I don't know if it's possible with Zoom today. So I'll um, give a, a minute or two. seems not to be working, but there's still one question in the chat from about 10 minutes ago, if you want to. Okay, what is it? Um, is Balat related to Vayet? Is what related? Balat related to Vayet. Um, to what? To Bayet? Vayet. Oh, Vayet? I don't think so. No, I don't think it's related. Vayet is from the word Nata. And Lot is related, I think, to Lut, to Luta, to covering or to concealing. Luta by Lot. The idea of isolation, covering something. Lot is a person who lives in isolation. Lot is unable to impact other people. I'm glad, I, I'm glad you asked that question at this point. It's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about in chapter four, into the first verse of chapter four. Are there any other questions or comments? Oh, I see the question. No, okay. Let me... Yes, I see a question from Micah here. Anything more to say about retroactive nature of change? I have plenty to say about it, but it's, uh, yeah, it has to do with the idea of, the, the idea of repentance, the idea of tshuva. The idea that if you're, if you're standing in a good place today, suppose someone's standing in a good place, how did you get there? You, we get where we are today, essentially from the past. The past has led us to the present. But the question is how we understand our past. So the point is, if you recognize the mistakes of the past, then in effect, that those behaviors of the past have, have taken you to a very good place. That's certainly true in terms of, I would say, the study of Torah. Something that Rabbi Soloveitchik emphasized very much about the study of Torah is that it's not about getting it right. I mean, of course, we want to, at the end of the day, we want to reach a place of understanding. But to, to get to a place of understanding, it's often the process of trial and error. It's conjecture. It's realizing that we were going on a wrong path. We correct it. We make corrections and corrections. And we feel we've derived some understanding. So all the, all the false, all the false leads, all the false trails, all the mistakes, all the errors, were they a waste of time? No. It's what it means to study. It's what it means to learn Torah. It means you hypothesize, you question, you have suggestions, you reject many of them. But all of that, and all of that enterprise of thinking and of discussing, hopefully leads us to a better, to a better place. The same is true of, of living. So the idea that in, in light of the present confession, he actually changes, he redefines that meaning with Tamar, the, which is the ultimate uh, the ultimate unknowing, but in, in light of the present confession, he converts that uh, dubious interaction from his standpoint into something positive. That was the general idea of, of tshuva, I would say 
retroactively redefining the past. So that's a, I think, even a bigger topic and a very important topic. But I did want to make the point because I want to contrast Judah's knowing with Lot's non-knowing. Now, coming back to Lot, let us begin now in chapter four, the last chapter. We had the we had the path, we had the field, we have the threshing floor, and now we have the gate. Uboaz Allah Hashar Vayeshev Sham. Boaz went up to the gate and he sat there. And the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken was passing by. And Boaz says, Mr. X, his name is not given. Mr. X, sit down. If he sits down. He took 10 of the elders, sit down, says Boaz, and they sit down. And now Boaz is going to have a, one might say a trial, a, a legal matter to be brought before these 10 elders. He's there, the other redeemer is there. And now Boaz is going to present the facts of the case, the redemption of the field of Naomi and the redemption slash leverage marriage of Ruth will be presented before these 10 elders. Now what's interesting is, I had mentioned that the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, Boaz and Ruth, Boaz from Judah, Ruth from Moab, what they share in common is a past background of some kind of leverage marriage. When it comes to Moab, it's the story of Lot. The word Lot means to be covered, concealed, isolated. We remember the story of Rishi. <clears throat> in chapter 18, God informs Abraham that God intends to destroy Sodom. The wickedness of Sodom has come up before God. God is, uh, God is hearing bad things. And God sets out, God tells Avram, I can't conceal from you what I plan to do. I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham, and I'm telling you this, was I know you're so concerned about justice, Sadako Mishpat. So I'm going to tell you, I can't conceal it from you. And when Abraham hears this, that God plans to destroy uh, Sodom, Amorah, Abraham argues with God. Maybe there are 50 righteous people. Maybe there are 45 righteous people. Maybe there are 40 righteous people. Each time God says, okay, I'll spare the place. Maybe there's maybe there's 30. Maybe they're 20, maybe they're 10. And after God agrees, if they're 10, I'll spare them all. Abraham stops at 10. He doesn't go below 10. Dominion. So what is this idea of 10? So what's interesting is, if you think about, we know that Lot is in Sodom. Abraham doesn't, in his prayers, doesn't mention Lot. It's interesting. Later, when Lot is saved in chapter 19, the Torah says God remembered Abraham and saved Lot. But in the prayers of Abraham, he doesn't mention Lot. Lot lives in the city of Sodom. Lot has a wife. She later turns into a pillar of salt. He's got his wife. There's Lot and his wife. How many daughters does Lot have? We know he has at least four daughters. Because we know he has the two unmarried daughters whom he tried to hand over to Sodom. 
and those are the two daughters that accompany him when he leaves the dome. We also know that it says he speaks to his sons-in-law. But his sons-in-law, plural, seem as one who was laughing. They don't believe him. If he has two sons-in-law, presumably he has then two married daughters. So he has a wife, he has four daughters, and he has two sons-in-law. But he also has at least two sons, because the angel sent to destroy to Sodom, say to Lot in chapter 19, sons and daughters, sons plural. So he has at least two sons. So he has four daughters and two sons, two sons-in-law, himself and a wife, exactly 10 people. In other words, if Lot had been able to influence his own family, there you have your 10 people right there. The angels came to Sodom, and what does the text say in chapter 19, verse number one? Lot Yoshev Bishar Sodom. Lot was to be found in the gate, in the Shar. The gate is the public place. It's also a place of judgment. Place judges in all your gates. But he's loath, covered up, isolated, concealed. Unlike Abraham, who instructs everybody around him, his disciples, his pupils, his family, about the right way to behave, Lot is somebody with no influence whatsoever. And now we come to chapter four of the book of Ruth, and now we have Boaz. Boaz is a Judah figure. He's an anti-Lot figure. He's the opposite of Lot. Lot was the person who was in the gate and could not influence a single sodomite. The entire town surrounded his house and demanded that the daughters be sent, be, the men be brought out to, the, to them. And then when Lot says no, they come to attack Lot and the angels save Lot. From young to old, the entire town. So Lot influences nobody. And what does Boaz do? He takes 10 people. Asara Anashim. Because if you have 10 right people, you can change the world. That's the point. But you need to get the 10. Boaz finds the 10. Asara Zekenim. He goes to the Shar. And what Boaz sets out to do here is to convince the community to accept Ruth. He's already accepted Ruth. He says to her, everybody knows you're an Eshet Chayim. You're a worthy woman, a woman of valor. That's one thing. Of course he's going to do that. Of course he's going to do the right thing. He, personally. But that's not what the leader is all about. The leader is the one who then takes the lessons of leadership and applies them to a different situation. It's what Judah does in the book of Genesis. Judah is taught the lesson by Tamar of the Eravon, of taking responsibility. He was the second. The other guy's not going to do it. You take responsibility. And then Judah's the same person who said to his father, send, me with, send Benjamin with me back to Egypt. I, have, I take responsibility. If I don't bring him back, I'll be a sinner. I'll take responsibility, one could say. I'll go down to Egypt, and I'm going to implore, I'm going to make every attempt that the viceroy of Egypt sends Benjamin back. But if the viceroy of Egypt doesn't send Benjamin back, I'll send Benjamin back. It means I'll take his place. It'll be me instead of him. 
That's the lesson of the Eir of Rome. So Yehuda has learned his lesson. And Yehuda also confesses before the whole story of Joseph. Why did you steal the Gabbat? Says Judah, but there's nothing we can say. Manitz Tadak. Manitz Tadak is the reflection of Tzadak. Tzadkamimani. So he puts into play that, that which he has learned. And what Boaz is going to do in chapter 4 is put into play the lessons he was taught by Ruth Naomi in chapter 3, which is, you're the redeemer. Don't give me this business of God's blessings. God's covering me. No, no. You spread your canopy over me. You're the redeemer. You're responsible for me and for the family, for both. That's the lesson that Judah teaches us. Tamar taught Judah. Judah understood it. And now we have the book of Ruth. So he goes to the gate. He's the anti-lot who finds 10 good people, influences 10 people. And now Boaz begins to speak. So Boaz speaks now. We're in chapter 4, the gate. Verse number 3, Boaz says to the Goel, we didn't know this before. We had no idea. Naomi, who returned from the country of Moab, the translation here is must sell the piece of land which belonged to our kinsmen. In other words, does it mean that the land was already sold? Naomi has no land. It certainly appears in the story Naomi has no land. If she has a piece of land, maybe she has it, but it's simply lying fallow. Or was it already sold, or she has to sell it? That's not clear. In the Torah, the Goel that appears in Vayikra, chapter 25, is the case where someone is forced to sell the land. It's been sold. That's what it sounds like. On the other hand, the book in Yirmiyahu, it sounds like it's a piece of land that would have to be sold. It wasn't necessarily sold already. Maybe. But over here, it's not totally clear. It could be that was already sold. Elimelech, when he left the land, sold his land. It's possible. In any event, that's the Goel. That's how the term Goel appears in the Torah in chapter 25 in Vayikra. The Torah talks about the closest relative. The different relatives have the responsibility to redeem it. Who's ever closer? The relative. It's an obligation that falls on all relatives. So Boaz says to the, the closest relative, the Goel, if you won't, won't redeem this piece of land, I will redeem the piece of land. Of course, if you're not going to do it, I'm next. And the Plony Almoni, Mr. X says, I will redeem it. Remember, we spoke about in chapter one, there are no bad people in this book. There are your average people, maybe even good in some sense. And then there's the very good people, the go, one that go beyond. Ruth goes beyond, Naomi goes beyond, Boaz goes beyond. The go, he, yes, I will redeem it. Arpa goes with Naomi initially. They go with her. Arpa goes. She finally goes back. Naomi talks her out of it. Go back, go back, go back. She goes back. Okay, it's normal. Not a bad person. But it's all about going beyond. Then Boaz says the following, difficult verse. By Yom of Boaz, 
when you purchase the field from Naomi, you take title. Let's say the field was sold. You take title of the field, or even if it's not sold, it becomes your field. It's a package deal, it says. Remember that if you buy the field, you're also buying it from Ruth the Moabite, whose, whose obligation to sustain the name you have. And then the Goel responds to that in verse number six, and this is a difficult verse. I can't, I, I don't fully understand it myself, actually. I, I mean, I have thoughts, I'll tell you. The Goel says, I can't do this. I can't redeem it. Lest I impair my estate. I can't, I can't, I can't do this, he says. I will ashkit at nachlati. So the obvious question is, what does this mean? Lest I, uh, lest I lose my, destroy, impair nachlati. There are many different possible readings of this. My own personal preference is the following. Personal preference today, maybe tomorrow we'll think of something better, but the point of Boaz's point is you're buying back the field. Field is to be, remain in the holdings of the family. So you're buying it for Naomi. But if, if Naomi dies, actually, then the field goes to you. So you're actually purchasing a field which you will keep. But what Boaz says is, no, you have to remember that if that there's also Ruth in the picture because Ruth was married to Naomi's son. And then presumably, if Ruth, if you take Ruth, right, in Leverett marriage and she has a child, that child actually would inherit the field. So you would purchase the field, but the field would then go to, to, to Ruth's child if she has a child. That child will inherit the field. It won't be your field. It'll be the field of, of Ruth's child. And that, he says, that I can't do. I'm willing to spend money if it's going to be my field. But if it passes on to Ruth's child, I'm unwilling to do it. It doesn't explain the term ashchit et nachlati. Ashchit sounds more than I just won't have it. I'll lose money. I'll impair in some sense. But in any event, at present, that's a suggestion. And the reason I like that suggestion is because throughout the chapter, the key word is the word goel, to redeem. Boaz is not the closest goel. He's a goel. But yesh goel karov me many. There's a closer goel. But after the end, the happy ending, Boaz marries Ruth and Ruth has a child. And there's a blessing that's given, more than one blessing at the end of the book. And the women say to Naomi in verse 14, Blessed is God who has not withheld a redeemer today. And may, may his name be perpetuated in Israel. So they called the child that's born the Goel, which suggests exactly what I said before, that the Goel, the real Goel, the primary goel would be Ruth, should Ruth have a child? That's the primary goel. That's the son of Ruth's husband, Machlon, the deceased Machlon. So whoever redeems 
would that actually keep the field? The field is in the name of the child of Ruth, should she have a child. If you perform leveret marriage, she may have a child, and that child will be the inheritor. So the closest guy says, Plony Amoni, the man with no name says, this I'm not going to do. This I refuse to do. So you do it. If you want to be the redeemer, you be the redeemer. And now the book of Ruth says in verse number seven, this was the custom in ancient Israel about redemption or exchange. A man would take his shoe off and hand it to the other. So such was the practice in Israel. So the Goel says to Boaz, take off, you can, you can acquire it. By Yeshuaf Nalo, he took off his shoe. It's not clear which one took off the shoe. Sounds like the other guy took off the shoe. Maybe not, I can't tell. But this is a formal act of acquisition. And Boaz speaks. And Boaz says, Boaz speaks to the elders and to the whole people. Suddenly it mentions all the people. You are witnesses. I've acquired everything. He mentions both sons. It's what I mentioned before about the six barley seeds. There are six people involved here. He redeems everybody, all six. The Gamet, Ruth Hamor, and Ruth the Moabite also, the wife of Machron, Chaniti Liliisha, Riyakim Shema Meit Anachwato, to establish the name of the dead on his inheritance. Riyakarei Shema Meit Beimechav Misham Mikomo, Edim Atemayom. The name will not be lost. The name is a name connected to the Nachala, to the Nachala, to the inheritance. We remember that in the very beginning of the book of Ruth, very beginning, Vashem, 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 seven times, the loss of the name. And now in chapter four, Leverett marriage takes place, combined with the Goel, with the redemption. And Leverett marriage, the Torah says, what's the purpose of Leverett marriage if brothers are living together and one dies? The wife of the deceased, if the brother has no children, shouldn't marry an outsider. Rather, there should be leveret marriage. And the purpose of leveret marriage, let's find the verse in Devarim, chapter 25. Devarim 25. Let's find that verse. Verse 25, chapter 25, Devarim, verse number 6. Habachar Hashem Tehleh Yakum. Yakum al shem achiv hamet lo yimoche shemo be Yisrael. Yakum lohakim shem, says the Torah. The name should not be obliterated. Focus on the name. Okay, if he, if he doesn't want to do it, then we have the chalitza ceremony. If he refuses to do this, then the woman stands up before the elder, the zekenim, takes off his shoe, spits before it, and spits in his face, literally, and says, this should be to the one who doesn't want to build up his brother's house. It's a degrading ceremony. Even 
he shall, this one who refused Yibum, shall be called in Israel the name, the family of the unsandaled one. Come back to that way, that's Chalitza. But the purpose of Yibum is to establish the name, or Hakim Shem. That's what Boaz says over here. His name shall not be lost. That's verse number, verse number 10. So Boaz makes the statement, not just to the 10 elders, but he makes the statement to the people. And in verse number 11, the people and everybody and the elders respond. We are all witnesses. So we have a blessing. We are witnesses, and they bless Boaz. The woman coming into your house should be like Rachel and Leah who together, both of them, built the house of Israel. And, and it be valor, may there be valorous, valor in Ephrat, and a perpetuation of a name in Beit Lechem. So let's just think about that verse for a moment. The, first of all, the Plony Almoni, Mr. X over here, of course, in the story, he's not a bad guy. But at the end of the day, he refuses to do leveret marriage. And the purpose of leveret marriage is to retain the name. To raise up a name. So the one who doesn't do it in the chapter is deprived of his own name. Mr. X, Mr. X. He doesn't give, that afford the dignity of a name A name, a shame, the word shame is a positive thing, the changing of a name. Noah's son, blessed son is shame. We say in our poets, oh, he's a big name, we say. He's a big name. So this person's not given the, afforded the name because he refused to give the other person a name. Look, give the other person a name, you're not entitled to your own name. That's the pony Amoni. So now we have, interesting that you think about the chapter, the previous chapter, um, in, the, in the previous chapter, Ruth was commanded by Naomi to lie down next to Boaz, and she stays and she lies there all night, even after they have the conversation, lie here. In the beginning of chapter four, the one of the key words is the word to sit. Vayeshev sham. Boaz goes Vayeshev. And Boaz says to the pony Amoni, Shvapo, sit, second time. Vayosev Vayeshev, third time. Then he takes 10 elders. Shvupo, fourth time. Vayeshevu, five times. And then later on, Boaz says, I speak to you, Boaz says, I speak here. Uh, 
Neged Hayoshvim in verse number four, six times sitting. And now we have something else. Now we have Boaz saying, the purpose of my being here is Lohakim Shem, to raise up the name. Lohakim. So you have this, you have the lying down, you have the sitting, you have the getting up over here. So the, the different, different postures actually reflect what's going on in the story. From the lying to the sitting to the rising up, Lohakim Shem. And now we have, as we're moving towards the end of, uh, I, have, I see a question here, I'm trying to, I'm not understanding the question about, about Yibum. What I'm suggesting about Yibum is that, I think what the text is saying, is that the way the text sets it up, Naomi has a, Naomi's husband died, she has no children, so there's a relative who, ha who has to perform levered marriage with Naomi. And my point though is that, and Ruth died, Ruth's husband died, and she also requires Yibu, leaving out the fact she's a Moabite. But she's a woman, husband died, no children. And my point is that the way the story plays out, both women simultaneously uh, have Yibum because when Boaz marries Ruth, Ruth is actually Naomi's proxy. Naomi and Ruth are one character, basically, in chapter three. Naomi has the idea of what to do, and Ruth does it. One might say Naomi and Ruth together are equal, are equal to Tamar. Tamar both plans it all out, and she's the woman who, who, who's the mother of these two children. And in the case of Naomi, Ruth, Ruth stands in for Naomi, and so Ruth requires Yibum. She's lost a husband, no children. Naomi has no children, Elimelech. And now the child of Ruth will be Ruth's child and also Naomi's child, as the text will say explicitly. The women will say at the end of the chapter, a child has been born unto Naomi. You had been with me. You had been with me. That, that, that's the point that I'm making. Even that Naomi said in the beginning of the book, I can't have children. That's not true. She can't have by her own biological children, but she has children. The child that's born to Ruth, the women will say at the end, the child has been born to Naomi. Naomi takes the child, nurses the child, holds the child, whatever, cares for the child. That's my point about the double yibum, how it plays out in the book of Ruth. It's different in the Judah Tamar, but there is a double yibum. There's a double yibum actually with Lot's two daughters, each daughter sleeps with Lot. That's also a double yibum. That doesn't have a fully happy ending, though. But the other two stories have different kinds of endings. Let me turn our attention now to, we have 15 minutes here. I want just to discuss the end of the book, these blessings. The book ends with a bunch of blessings. Beautiful book. Really the sweetest book we have. All good. It's all sweet. All sweetness here. So the blessing to Ruth, all the people, I want to emphasize again the point that I made. The point of Boaz here as a leader is a leader is a person who has a, a vision, who has a good understanding of, of the right thing. That's the first step in the leadership, have a clear sense of right and wrong, a vision. And the second thing is, how do you convince other people of your vision? How do you get them to buy into your vision? And that's what Boaz is after over here. 
And very often it happens when you take responsibility. Follow me, you say, follow me. I'm willing to take the risks. I'm willing to marry the Moabite. I'm willing to do all these things because it's the right thing to do. And if you make that clear, often the community will actually follow you. That's what happens over here. So that's what Boaz is after in chapter four. That's why he gathers the 10. It's about everybody, the community, the people accepting Ruth. I'll come back to that at the end. That's very important. It's a sign of community, a strong community accepts the outsider. It's not afraid of the outsider. It's secure in, and uh, secure in their own beliefs. Frightened people often can't accept the outsider or any kind of change because of insecurity. If you're securing your values, you're not so worried about someone else thinking a little differently. Not a problem. In any event, what is the blessing over here? May the woman who came into your house be like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. So what I want to say is this, that actually, let's for one moment think about Judah and Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar, what is the great significance of that story? It's because in that story, at the end of the story, you have twins that are born. But the twins that are born, it's not one or the other. They're both included. And they both have to be included because each one replaces a deceased son. So for the first time we have in the Torah, a family where both siblings are part of the same family. That's not true of Yishmael and Yitzchak. It's not true of Abraham and his brothers. It's not true of Jacob and Esau but it is true of Peretz and Zerach. You need them both. Okay, one is first and one is second. That's true, but they're both included. And that becomes the model for, for the rest of for Jacob's family. The lessons Judah learns from his Rebbe Tamar in chapter 38, he then puts into practice to bring the entire family together. Bring the family together means in the book of Genesis, Joseph and the brothers. And that's the illusion over here in this verse. This woman should be like Tamar. This woman should be like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. There should be Valor and Ephrat, Ephrata, and a name, a name in Beit Lechem. Now the question is, what is Ephrata? Ephrat. The book begins actually describing Naomi, her husband, as a, uh, it says, Machron Ephratim mi Beit Lechem Yehuda, Ephrathites. It's interesting that in the beginning of the book of Samuel, first verse, Elkanah is an Ephrat, is an Ephrati. Here the English translation is Ephramatite from Ephraim. And there's a dispute among the commentaries how to understand Ephrat. Is Ephrat Ephraim? Or is Ephrat part of Bethlehem? Is it Judah? Where is Ephrat? Now, the word Ephrat itself, we identify with Rachel. Rachel dies, but Derech Ephrata, he beit lechem. So the point is, the division, of course, in the Jewish people in Genesis and beyond is always Joseph, Judah. Rachel, Leah, Benjamin, 
the other tribes. So the prayer is that this woman who comes into your house should bring together Rachel and Leah, should bring together Ephrat and Beit Lechem. Boaz actually seems to be from both. I mean, the story takes place. So the Ephratim, Naomi, Ephrat, Beit Lechem, right? Can we bring the two together? And that's the prayer. And the one who sometimes is able to bring the people together is the person who st stands outside the squabbles. When you're inside the community, all these little things, all these little fights, all these minor distinctions become very major differences. Someone standing from the outside says, what are you fighting about? Basically on the same page. It takes the outsider to recognize that many of the internal fights, which is so important, also it's a clinicite. They're very small things. They're very unimportant, actually. And the prayer is that this outsider who has the courage and the wisdom and guided by Naomi to do the right thing will be able to bring everybody together, will be able to be inclusive. And that's the prayer for her. And the next verse is explicit. He may talk about parrots, the house of Peretz that Tamar bore for Judah. Tamar was the one, actually, who's able, in effect, to bring a family together, to include everybody in the family, to find a way that everybody is included. Okay, one may have a particular blessing or not, but they're both included. That's the first model in the Torah where you have inclusion. And that was what Judah does later. And the other place where you have inclusion with two brothers, one maybe have a bit of a greater blessing, but essentially they have the same blessing, actually. That's Benasha and Ephraim. That's when Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, who he adopts as his own sons, Benasha and Ephraim. He gives them one blessing. He includes them together as one. And there he gave them a blessing. We'll come back to that in a moment. So that's the first blessing. And then Boaz takes Ruth. God granted her pregnancy. So God acts in a very direct way here. As God did in chapter 1. It's funny because the story is all about people. God acts through the people. It's all about people. It's a book that has more dialogue than any other book of the Bible. It's all dialogue. And now the women speak again. The chorus speaks again. I mentioned that already before. This child is the, is the Redeemer. The Redeemer is the child. His name be called out. Here they translate perpetuated in Israel. I'll come back to that in a moment. This child should restore your soul. Sustain you in your old age. For the daughter-in-law, for the daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, she's the one who bore this child. That phrase, she's better than seven sons, a similar phrase appears in chapter one of Samuel, when Elkanah said to, to his wife, Hannah, what are you worried about a child for? Am I not better than 10 sons? And of course, the answer there is no. 
you're not better than 10 sons. I want a son for another reason. I want a son to change the world. I want a son to change society. I want a son who will be a kingmaker. Elkanah doesn't understand, but here it is true. So this book, which bridges the Shoftim and the kingship, here they say to her very appropriately, this child is a redeemer of your soul. You had said in chapter one, you can't have children. Not so. You have a child through your beloved Ruth, better than seven sons. And Naomi, in fact, takes the child and she cares for the child. And in verse 17, and the neighbors gave him a name saying, you are Bain Naomi, a child is born for Naomi. And she named him, they named him Oved, the father of Yishai, the father of David. And then we have the genealogy of kingship ending up with David. So in the book of Ruth, the political side, the way society works, is a function of the way people work. It starts with people on the very personal level. It's all about family. It's all about how we treat each other on the level of family. And that is reflected in the book of Ruth in the promise of kingship. David, of course, is presented as an ideal king over here, as he is in many places of the Bible, not in Samuel, but in many places of the Bible. And that emerges from ideal behavior of the people who go beyond the simple law and who uh, act in a very noble and very uh, self-sacrificing manner. At the end of the day, it's a book with an incredibly happy ending. Everything is restored. All the lost names of chapter one are restored in chapter four. Just wanted to conclude with the following thought about, uh, about the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth ends with blessings. It's all about blessings, many blessings. And uh, we remember, of course, that the exclusion of the Moabite in the Torah, one of the two reasons given where you don't allow the Moabite into the community, one was they didn't greet you with bread and with food and water when you came back. But the other was they hired Bilam uh, to curse you. But God, God, God switched over. God transformed the curse into a blessing because God loves you. Therefore, you have nothing to do with, 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 with Moab. And now we have a book, of course, with a hero. They're all heroes. It's Naomi, there's Ruth, it's Boaz. But Ruth is actually the anti-Moabite. Ruth is the one who behaves exactly in opposite way. She does bring the bread, she brings the food. She, like Abraham, she's an Abraham figure. She, unlike Lope, she makes the leap of faith, self-sacrificing. And um, now we have the reverent marriage as well. So we have, and she's the source of blessing. The book is filled with blessings. Bruchat, Vashem, Biti, with blessings. And Ruth is basically the main cause of the blessings. She's the one who brings blessing. So I was thinking, the child that is born, may his name be called out in Israel. We say that actually. When a child is named, I say the Brit, or if it's a girl, we'd say naming the girl. We say that we're giving a name. Awesome moment to give someone a name. It's unbelievable.
that expression comes from here. So I was thinking a couple of thoughts about the idea of, and we actually adopt this. We, the Jewish people, have adopted this phrase when we name a child. And two things come to mind, which I will conclude. One is that when Jacob blesses his children, who are Joseph's children, Jacob says, bring them to me, and he puts his right hand on Ephraim's head and left hand on the head of Menashe. And he says, the God, the God who was a goel, a redeemer, should bless the children. So there, he talks about the redeemer. There Jacob says, in, in them shall my name be called, and the name of my ancestors that through them I am blessed, and Isaac is blessed, and Abraham is blessed. And over here we have a book, actually, which ends with blessings. The Koreshim will be a blessing of the blessing of the child. And here too, it's about connecting this child to the past as well as to the future, because his mother is Abraham's daughter. So it's a link to the past. It's a link in the tradition. And amazingly, through Ruth, essentially, who's the anti-Lot. Anti-Lot means you're Abraham. Lot being Abraham's foil. So we connect to the past. We connect to Abraham, to the Chesed, through Ruth. And that's the hope for this child. Looking back and moving forward, it ends up with the genealogy of David. David and Abraham are, in this book and in the book of Samuel, two people that are deeply connected to each other. Let me conclude with one final thought about the blessings. The blessings at the end of the book of Ruth, so the Yikarei Shemo B'Yisrael, Baruch Hashem HaShol Hishpit Loch Kawer Hayom, the Yikarei Shemo, the women give a blessing to Boaz. They say, thank God, they say to Naomi, blessed is God who did not uh, who did not withhold the Redeemer today, may his name be perpetuated in Israel. In the Chumash, which talks about leveret marriage, it doesn't talk about a blessing. It says something different. The man who refuses to do leveret marriage, he shall be degraded, and his name shall be called in Israel, Beit Chalutz Hanal, the house of the one whose shoe was taken off, the ceremony of Chalitza, the one who refused to do what he's supposed to do, and you take his shoe off, shoe is a sign of dignity, and you spit in his face. There the Chumash speaks about a negative ritual, the negative name, but the Book of Ruth has no negativity. So the Book of Ruth alludes to Chalitza, of course, taking off the shoe, but it's not about Plony Almoni. Plony Almoni is your average decent guy who's willing to do some good, but not walk the extra mile. But this book's not about that. This book is about those that walk the extra mile. So here one might say, we have another example of transforming the curse into a blessing. At the end of the book, the allusion to the chalitza, to the leveret marriage, in which is contained the degrading, the degrading, uh, the degrading name, the degrading reference of Beit Chalutza now, 
becomes in the book of Ruth quite the opposite. Baruch Hashem Asher Hishpichoch Kavel Hayom Fi Beit Chok Beit Peretz Asher Yodat Tamar Yudah. It's all about a blessing of the house, the blessing of the family. So once again, Ruth and the book of Ruth is a book in which the negativity is transformed into something very positive. It's about seeing uh, what happened in the past as stepping stones to something which turns out at the end to work out very well. And uh, very appropriate book to study, I think, both as a preparation for the holiday of Shavuot and the difficult times that we and the world are experiencing and hoping that there's an end to all the dying and the suffering and all the other problems that this entails and the hope that actually maybe something good comes out of this as well. Maybe we've, we've learned a lot for the future about how to protect ourselves better, how to be much more aware of what's going on around us. Thank you both for participating. And there'll be other learning opportunities. Adrisha, of course, there are other things going on. And I myself am considering doing some other teaching. Thank you for your participation. Shavuot Tov.